Hello and welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest today is Anel Shaleen. Anel is a research fellow in the Middle East program at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft in Washington. She was previously the Zwan postdoctoral fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy. Prior to beginning her PhD, she worked as a journalist in Egypt and Yemen. In addition to academic writing, she's written for The Washington Post, The Nation, Foreign Policy, Politico, and Foreign Affairs. Our conversation today focuses on the JCPOA, how Yemen factors into the talks, and how the Gulf and Israel are watching as events unfold in Vienna. Anel, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Bill. Now, I'm going to open up with a connect the dots question, if you don't mind. Iran, Yemen, JCPOA, USA. Walk us through the connections, Anel. Yes, it is, unfortunately, uh, for Yemen, uh, very interconnected. Um, So the fate of Yemen has been connected to the JCPOA or the Iran nuclear deal ever since Obama agreed to support the Saudi-led intervention that began almost seven years ago in March of 2015. He hoped that by doing so, the Saudis might temper their criticism of the deal. And then furthermore, Mohammed bin Salman, who was defense minister at the time, was confident and reassured the Americans that the coalition would defeat the Houthis in a matter of weeks. But unfortunately, both Obama and MBS were wrong. The Saudis still very strongly criticized the Iran deal, despite American support for their their intervention in Yemen. And clearly, the Houthis have not proven easy to defeat. Um, And originally the Saudis' reason for intervention had to do with concerns that Iran was supporting the Houthis. They feared the establishment of a Hezbollah-style insurgency on their southern border. And what is ironic is over the past seven years, uh, Iranian partnership with the Houthis has only grown. The Houthis having now gained much greater access to weapons and more importantly, knowledge. I think there's often this finger pointing at Iran for smuggling, which certainly happens. But but at this point, um, you know, for example, the, the recent attacks by the Houthis at the UAE, it would make no sense for Iran to have ordered an attack like that, for example. I mean, the Iranian relationship with the UAE is, is a fairly close, they, they have strong commercial ties. Um, and so to think of the Houthis as an Iranian proxy is really, really inaccurate. But we do know that from Iran's perspective, it's, it's a great investment. They send just smuggled equipment to the Houthis who then rain these missiles and drones down upon Saudi Arabia. And now more recently also starting to, to aim them at the UAE. And this causes the the Saudis to spend hundreds of billions of dollars on these very expensive weapon systems, most of which are sold to them by the US, but also the UK. And so from the Iranians' perspective, it's just a great way to to force the Saudis to continue uh, to, to waste this money in Yemen, I mean, waste money destroying Yemen, when we know that MBS has has a very ambitious plan for the future of the country, he's really eager to attract investment, but it is really hard to do so when you have this threat of of Houthi um, missiles and projectiles coming across the border. And again, clearly the Houthis can hit Abu Dhabi and Dubai. That means they can hit essentially anywhere within within Saudi territory. 
I don't know if that connected quite all the dots, but I, those are a few of the dots. Yes, yeah, as you say, there are <laughs> there are many many dots in this in this story, but, but you have mentioned uh, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, and and I do want to talk in a little more detail about those two states, but but let me begin with the Saudis. What is the current state of its relationship with Iran and and how is that playing into the JCPOA conversation? Yes. So, you know, last year was was quite encouraging uh, for those of us that are eager to see less conflict in the region and, and more reliance on diplomacy. So obviously, you know, at the sort of end of 2020, beginning of 2021, we saw the the GCC managed to heal the the Gulf Rift when Saudi Arabia lifted the blockade of Qatar, and the UAE and Bahrain and Egypt came along, such that that those relationships, while they they still have not necessarily addressed all of the initial Saudi and, and especially Emirati concerns about Qatar's behavior, but it seems that the the leaders have just decided it's better to move on, that it's not really worth this internal GCC fighting. Um, so that was a good uh, move in the direction of, of diplomacy. And then we also saw the countries of the GCC reaching out to Iran and, and Iran reaching back. Um, many of these talks being conducted in Baghdad and sort of under the, the auspices of Iraqi leadership. We also saw fences being mended between Turkey and the UAE after they had been on opposing sides in Libya, for example, um, also Turkey reaching out to Egypt. So in general, it was quite encouraging to see some of these, what for the past several years had really just, just all of these proxy battles and sort of struggles for, for regional dominance that had really torn up places like Libya and Syria and Yemen for the past several years, we saw that the instigators or the, the leaders that were behind some of those foreign policy decisions appearing to embrace uh, a more diplomatic approach, which is encouraging. Uh, I think in, in this regard, it is important to remember the impact of the US here, that the US withdrawal from Afghanistan was just the latest example of uh, the US making clear that, that we Americans are, are not going to be involved militarily in the Middle East in the same way that we saw after 9-11. And so these countries realizing that perhaps they should, it's more important that they work out a modus vivendi between them instead of being able to count on the U.S. to back them up if, if for example, the, the Saudis got themselves into a hot war with Iran, they used to feel more confident that the U.S. would would be there to, to help fight that war for them. And now they're sort of feeling less confident about that. So uh, that's not to say that, that Saudi-Iranian relations are necessarily strong or close. And I think part of what's unfortunate is, is after this withdrawal from Afghanistan and you saw these moves towards diplomacy, I think some members of the Biden administration panicked a little bit because there's been so much of a, a sense that, oh, the U.S. is withdrawing from the Middle East and you know, we can't count on the U.S. as a security guarantor anymore. And so there's been a rush to reassure America's Gulf security partners that we're not going anywhere, we're still going to maintain our troop presences, you, know, you can still count on us because there's this alarm that these countries might then turn to China. 
But I think what's interesting is you know, these countries are already turning to China. They have, I mean, China's the main trading partner for, for many of these countries. It, it purchases much more oil these days than the United States does. But just because China is an important commercial partner doesn't necessarily mean that these countries are looking to China as a security guarantor. I mean, China does not uh, do what the U.S. does in sort of saying or making clear that when you when you buy a, a weapons system, you're also sort of buying American support. So I think in general, there's been a certain amount of panic among the American security establishment that we're losing out to China. But I think where we're losing out is is in the, the economic sphere. That much is clear. But I, I, I don't think that there's there needs to be so much concern that, that China is going to come in and start building bases all over the Middle East because they've seen that it hasn't really worked for the United States. I mean, clearly the military hegemony of the United States in the Middle East has mostly just been a headache for everyone involved. Yeah, and, and I suppose too that uh, the dominant factor really is something you touched on, which is the arms sales. I mean, the, the American weapons sales to the Gulf are, are huge and, and hugely important. Yet at the same time, the Gulf does feel this uh, sense of, of insecurity because they feel like America doesn't have their back anymore, certainly not in the way it, it, it used to. Um, and, and we touched a little bit, or rather you touched a little bit on the UAE, which uh, Christian Kosar Ulrichson and I were having this conversation a, a few weeks back about the relationship that the Emiratis have with Iran, which is different from the relationship the Saudis have, isn't it? Definitely. And, you know, I mean, what's interesting about the UAE is that it's a collection of emirates, you know, so we we have seen a more aggressive foreign policy coming out of Abu Dhabi under MBZ, though, as I said, that he sort of mollified that stance over the past year. Um, but that was different than Dubai, where you you have long had close commercial relations with Tehran and such that these interests were sometimes incompatible that the that Abu Dhabi would be pursuing some more interventionist foreign policy that would kind of be make make trade relations <laughs> difficult for some of the the commercial class in Dubai that really just want to focus on making money. Um, but I think part of why we've seen MBZ's shift is is he he has worked he and and the the UAE in general have been very skillful at cultivating this image of the UAE as a safe and stable and tolerant place that is open for business. And the, I think you know, part of why we saw the UAE pull most of their military forces out of Yemen at the end of 2019 had to do with, with the fact that they just weren't getting enough out of, out of that intervention to make it worth their while when they're really their main interest is to project this image of stability. And so this is part of what's been interesting about these recent attacks by the Houthis. There was a hashtag circulating just a, in recent days um, from some pro-Houthi Twitter accounts or even just Yemenis who are not necessarily pro-Houthi but they're opposed to the UAE's intervention. Um, the, the hashtag I saw, there may have been several, but it was Al-Emirat Rayr Amna, that the Emirates are not safe which, which is, you know, sort of a nightmare for the Emirates, which they have worked very hard to try to make clear that that they are safe and they are a hub for, for investment and travel, 
um, you know, the, their decision to join the Abraham Accords was also part of sort of burnishing this image of, of their tolerance and their openness to establishing relations with Israel. Um, so it, it would be in keeping with this general image of the UAE to, to bolster relations with Iran if it seems like that will continue to be in their interest. Like, for example, if the JCPOA is, is um, if they, both Iran and the US re-enter it, then we would likely we'd be likely to see the UAE sort of embracing that and moving towards perhaps even closer relations with Iran. But at the same time, we now <laughs> the Houthis potentially are throwing a wrench into that. That it, you know, if this image of the UAE as stable is quite damaged by what the Houthis are doing, the UAE may may start to try to demand that Iran do something about it. But as I said before. It's not clear that Iran can really control the behavior of the Houthis at all. So, uh, the the <laughs> again with with sort of what's unfortunate about the war in Yemen is is just how the efforts of the actors involved just continue to seem to make everything worse. Yeah, it's um it's a very tangled skein, and as and as you say, the the Houthis by launching these attacks have really, I think, rattled. The Emiratis, because their image of a stable, secure place where the West can come and do business, where tourists can come and enjoy themselves, that that image is really under under threat. But but look, I want to uh, swing over to your side of the pond. Um, what do you make of the Biden administration's handling thus far? The JCPOA talks and. Um, how much flack is he taking from the Republicans about bringing Americans back into? the worst deal ever, as the former president put it? Well, you know, what's been interesting is um, how certain members of Congress, even including some Democrats, have been quite critical of Biden's efforts to rejoin the JCPOA. Uh, you know, it makes sense politically why the Republicans would take this stance, but we've also uh, long seen the um, Bob Menendez, who's a senator from New Jersey, he has opposed the JCPOA for, for years, back, back during the Obama years. And some of this, to understand some of this requires, you know, what, what we should all do in Washington, which is to try to follow the money. And, you know, so for example, Bob Menendez was dealing with uh, corruption charges a few years ago. Um, and some of the major donors to his legal defense fund included um, pro-Israel donors like the late Sheldon Adelson, his wife Miriam, who gave tens of thousands of dollars to to support him. The the Adelsons, uh, the huge supporters of Donald Trump and Benjamin Netanyahu, and very wealthy and uh, very much opposed to the JCPOA. Yes. And he he managed to come through that. He's still still a senator and is now, once again, chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And so in this position of power um, has has been very vocal, vocally opposed to Biden's efforts to rejoin the JCPOA. And then obviously on the Republican side, you have the same old opponents like Lindsey Graham from South Carolina, Marco Rubio, Florida. Ron Johnson of Wisconsin, but many, many people also also um, in the House of Representatives. And 
so I guess I would say that that I think Biden has been taking flack from certain members of Congress uh, over you know, throughout his presidency over the course of the past year, uh, especially initially when it, it seemed that Biden might just rejoin the deal immediately, as he said he would on the campaign trail. There were efforts by Republicans to try to get themselves the power to veto the U.S.'s rejoining of the JCPOA. More recently, with the, the talks in Vienna, it's, you know, you, we keep hearing different reports. They're going well, they're not going well, they're stalled. I think the, the latest, uh, there, there seems to be some signals coming from both the U.S. and the Iranian side that perhaps we They've used the words ballpark. <laughs> We're in the ballpark of a deal, but it's unclear what that actually means. I, I do think the concern in general is that regardless of, you know, if Biden does get back into the deal, what's going to happen with the next U.S. president if a Republican retakes control or even if the Republicans retake control of Congress in the coming midterms, well, what efforts might might they undertake to try to undermine or pull the U.S. out. Um, and then definitely a Republican president would be likely to, again, just pull right out of the deal. So it's, it is, it's, it's such, part of why this is such a, a problem is you hear so much about American credibility and this notion that, you know, we have to maintain American credibility in, in any of various conflicts around the world. So, you know, if, if the U.S. pulls out of Afghanistan, that's going to make China think it can just take Taiwan or make Russia think it can just take Ukraine because America is not seen as credible anymore. When really the real damage to our credibility has to do with things like not maintaining uh, agreements like this, uh, that, that when it is unclear that other countries could count on US foreign policy to be stable, or at least relatively stable on, on something like an international agreement from one administration to the next, I mean, that does much more damage to American credibility than this sort of false notion that American behavior in one part of the world is then going to uh, be, be interpreted by, by potential adversaries in other parts of the world. Yeah, that's a very good point, Anel, that, uh, as you say, the uh, JCPOA could, could be, in fact, revivified uh, for a couple of years and could die yet again, because as you say, a Republican comes in and, and out goes the JCPOA. I, I want to ask you now about the Israelis. Uh, you know, they've been toing and froing on the belligerence message uh, from, from a big unilateral strike to let's just not go there. Uh, but how worried are the Israelis that Biden will give ground too readily to Iran in his eagerness to get the JCPOA back up and running? Well, uh, clearly, Biden isn't all that eager to get the JCPOA back up and running. I think if he were, we would have seen him do that back when, you know, immediately after uh, taking the presidency, when he made several decisions like rejoining the Paris Climate Accord that were just clearly reversing Trump policies. And, and he got and things like even lifting the, the terrorist designation of the Houthis. These were things Trump had done that Biden immediately reversed. And I, I think he could have rejoined the JCPOA then under the rubric of reversing Trump's policies and it would not have caused the same kind of political pushback that he is much more likely to get now, now that it's it's dragged on and he's promised this longer and stronger deal, et cetera. Um, so just to push back on the notion that <laughs> Biden is, is 
eager to rejoin. But what's been interesting is how a few weeks ago, we heard from several former senior Israeli officials, their chagrin at the US pulling out and specifically at, at Bibi Netanyahu's strenuous efforts to get Trump to pull out of the deal then saying this was strategically catastrophic for Israel because Iran is now that much closer to having the capacity to build a nuclear weapon. And so one, one could wonder, you know, for some of the, the American politicians that are very much in the pocket of the Israel lobby, how they interpret this when you hear senior Israelis saying they, they wish that the, the JCPOA, that the U.S. had never pulled out, how, how they interpret that and how, how they're supposed to move forward with it. Um, I do think, you know, one, one thing that is important to keep in mind here is that Israel is, is at least from an American perspective, I mean, I'm not a, an expert on Israel, but there, there seems, there, as is the case in many countries, there's a perception of um, a monolithic quality about other countries. And so I think sometimes Americans perceive Israel as, as unilaterally just opposed to Iran or fearful of Iran. Um, and, you know, we clearly have seen that coming out of Israeli politics. Uh, and similarly, a similar um, sort of monolithic view being applied to Iran, when in fact, there, there's often much more disagreement below the surface, below the official statements. You know, I do think that there are elements of Israeli society that would welcome a return to the nuclear deal because this would help because the JCPOA was really the only thing that was successful in constraining Iran's nuclear program. And so Israelis would be able to feel less concerned about the possibility of Iran obtaining a nuclear weapon. Just one final point there. I, I also think it's important to keep in mind that even if Iran did get a nuclear weapon, to use it against Israel would be as, would be suicidal. I mean, Israel has its own nuclear weapons and also the U.S. would... <laughs> I immediately uh, retaliate on Israel's behalf if Israel itself didn't do it. So, uh, you know, I obviously nuclear weapons are, are extremely important um, and, and non-proliferation is, is an important part of U.S. policy. But again, I, I think sometimes all of this focus on if a country gets a nuclear weapon, how destabilizing that would be, it's just, you know, it's not necessarily clear that the country that we then have to be concerned that the country would turn around and use it. It's often much more about um, the country being able to establish uh, a sense of self-defense and to feel that it is more secure. Yes, well, we've certainly seen that with India and Pakistan, both uh, nuclear armed but uh, and, and have gone to war many times whilst having those weapons. Um, look, I want to ask you, uh, because we we've spoken about the U.S. And, and the Biden administration. How do you think Tehran is playing its hand in these JCPOA talks? I think they're playing it rather well, but maybe I'm being too generous. Well, you know, what, what's unfortunate is when Trump pulled out of the JCPOA, he proved the, the Iranian hawks right, that Iran should have never trusted the U.S., that trying to revive diplomacy and maybe establish a working relationship with, with the U.S., that this was all foolish and it disempowered those in Iran who had worked so hard to try to convince both the public and the 
the foreign policy establishment that the way forward lay in trying to build bridges to the US and to Europe. And so instead, you know, clearly we, we saw the hardliners take power. Uh, obviously there was a question there of <laughs> the, the legitimacy of those elections is, is very much in question, but, but the, the point is the hardliners were, were set up for a win after it became clear that the moderates' confidence in the willingness of the United States to mend fences, um, that that was misplaced. And so instead now we see Iran moving closer to China, establishing much closer relations, um, and also just keeping in mind that U.S. sanctions are not working or that they're only working to immiserate ordinary people because the elite in Iran continue to grow more prosperous. And this is often the case. And what's, what's illogical is, is that U.S. sanctions are often intended to provoke a population to grow so fed up with their leadership due to the, the hardships that they rise up and overthrow those leaders. But after so many years of sanctions against Iran, not to mention Cuba and North Korea and Syria and Venezuela, you would think that the U.S. foreign policy establishment would start to understand that imposing sanctions as a means of inspiring grassroots regime change simply does not work. And that when people are so ground down, they, they focus on merely surviving. It's, you know, you're more likely to get uh, an uprising of, of popular opposition when, when expectations are rising and reality is not meeting those expectations. I mean, this contributed to some of what we observed in, in the Arab Spring when people had been told for years that their economies were doing much better. And I remember living in Egypt right before the Arab Spring, there was all this talk about how Egypt had survived the 2008 financial crisis so well partly because its economy just wasn't all that closely tied to the international economy at the time. And so Egyptians said, we keep talking about our GDP growth, and yet we're not seeing any of this translating into our own lives. Um, and this, this then sense of inflated expectation contributed to the uprising. Whereas when a population is just, just ground down by sanctions, they have to just focus on survival. So to get back to your point about whether Tehran is playing its hand skillfully, uh, I, you know, I, it's not surprising that the Raisi government has has been less conciliatory than what we saw the previous Iranian regime being sort of willing to to reach out. And again, it's it's sort of unclear now at this point, even if the U.S. and Iran did both come back to the JCPOA, I think there would just be a general sense of sort of dissatisfaction and disappointment on both sides that we wouldn't necessarily see the same sense of optimism that that surrounded the, the signing of the JCPOA back in 2015. Yeah, and I'm wondering, too, that uh, if, if this new... Uh arrangement does come about but does not include some language on Iran's ballistic missile arsenal and its use of proxies in Syria, Lebanon, and Yemen. Uh, how upset do you think the Gulf states and Israel will be? Well, this argument is a little bit maddening um, because back in 2015, neither the Gulf states nor Israel wanted these other issues to be on the table when the US and, or, or when the, the P5 plus one were negotiating with Iran about 
their nuclear program because the, the Israelis wanted the negotiations to focus on the nuclear file, partly because they, uh, they were most concerned about the nuclear file. And, and they worried that if these other issues were included, that the US might actually go soft on the question of, of Iran's nuclear program. So they, they thought it was important to keep focused fairly exclusively on the question of nuclear weapons. And so they pushed that to, to not have these other issues included. Whereas the, the, the Gulf states didn't want these negotiations to include any of these other issues because they weren't at the table. And so if, if agreements had been signed with Iran having to do with trying to constrain their missile programs or, or support for uh, groups around the region, if they didn't go far enough uh, from the, the perspective of, of the Arab states, they didn't want that to, to sort of be agreed um, between these, these other states and Iran. Um, if they were not going to be included. And, you know, it, it is a question of should the Arab states have been brought in um, such that there would have been more, they would have had a reason to buy into to the agreement, whereas by excluding them, they immediately were very critical of it. It's, it's not clear, I mean, even just negotiating solely on the question of, of the nuclear file clearly was was quite difficult just by itself. And, and as we've seen in these recent negotiations remains quite difficult just to focus on that question. Uh, you know, again, the hope was that after the successful signing of the JCPOA that then they, the US could build upon it to, to perhaps bring in the Arab states uh, or at least to just address these other questions of Iran's other activities in the region. Um, but clearly as we've seen Biden's promise of this longer and stronger deal is is it's not going to happen even just getting Iran back to and getting the U.S. back to the terms of, of just what the JCPOA agreed to has proven quite challenging. Mm. Well, finally, Anel, uh, we began with Yemen, so let's conclude there. Your thoughts on the situation in Yemen? So, as I said, what's so unfortunate about Yemen is that the situation just keeps getting worse and worse, and, you know, there's talk about the fact that right before the Saudis intervened back in 2015, that their, the Houthis had, got, had come close to negotiating a, a power sharing agreement with other parties on the ground in Yemen, which might have, have just sort of ended Yemen's civil war right there, or at least, at least they would have found a, a workable solution, not to say that would have necessarily been the end of violence forever in Yemen, uh, but at least it would have kept the, the terms of what happened in Yemen sort of limited to the Yemeni actors themselves on the ground. Whereas now with following these much heavier involvement, not only by obviously the Iranians, but um, the Saudis, the Emiratis, the other members of the Saudi-led coalition, involvement by the US and the UK in, in terms of supporting all these actions that that now we do see the, the Houthis behaving more aggressively than they otherwise might have if, if they had you know, been in, in the weaker position that they were in when they might have agreed to some kind of power sharing arrangement with other Yemeni players. At this point, you know, all last year, we saw various successes by the Houthis. There was a lot of talk about 
the notion um, I I myself wrote that it seemed the the Houthis were simply winning, and so it was it did not make sense for the Saudis, for example, to try to maintain these maximalist demands on the Houthis, which remain the framework imposed by UN Security Council Resolution 2216, which remains sort of the, the framework for negotiations, which is part of why the Houthis have been unwilling to come to the negotiating table because the terms are just so unfavorable to them, um, which is why I think it's very important that the UN Security Council reconvene on the question of Yemen and adopt a resolution that would help encourage the Houthis to the negotiating table. But again, it's, a, it's just not clear that even that would work because the Houthis have made all of their gains through military action and, and have, have only grown more powerful. I, as, as we've seen in recent weeks, we did see advances by Emirati-backed uh, militia groups like the Al-Amalika brigades, retaking some territory in places like Shabwa and Al-Beda and trying to keep the Houthis from taking the strategic city of Marib. But this, again, this is just sort of the, the same back and forth on the ground of, of retaking territory. And the Houthis in general, I think uh, at this point do, do think that if they just keep fighting, they will be able to consolidate control over the former North Yemen. If that were to happen at that point, my, my sense is that the, the Houthis would want to be able to expand their relations beyond just Iran, which is at this point the only country that sort of recognizes the Houthis as, as the government in Sana'a. So it would be in the Houthis' interest to try to play more by international rules to do things like not disturb any sort of shipping going through the Bab al-Mandab, for example. But again, that would depend on the international community then treating them like a legitimate actor and, and saying, all right, if you play by the rules that other governments play by, we'll, we'll treat you like a legitimate government. And that would then incentivize the Houthis to behave as such. But there are many within Yemen who would find that completely intolerable. You know, they've, they've suffered at the hands of the Houthis. They very much um, fear what the Houthis are trying to do. A again, as I said, just because things keep going from bad to worse and, and many sort of social ties have broken down in Yemen, you've, you just, the, the devastation of the economy and just even ag agriculture in Yemen, it's going to take so much to try to rebuild, even just to get Yemen to, to the barely functional state it was operating in back before the war, which was already, it was classified as being on uh, essentially or on the verge of becoming a failed state. So uh, it's, it's really, <laughs> Yemen really does just keep getting worse. And so this is part of why I, I do think it is really quite crucial that the United States push for its security partners, the Saudis and the Emiratis, to end their military involvement in Yemen and to try to return sovereignty of the conflict to the Yemenis themselves, that they need to, to work out between them what the future of Yemen is going to be. But as, as we've seen thus, thus far, the Biden administration uh, seems to be more interested in continuing to sell weapons to the Saudis and Emiratis that are then used in Yemen. Uh, so I, you know, I, don't, I don't necessarily have a great answer there in terms of you know, what ultimately will be the outcome of if the Houthis did consolidate control. 
what impact that might have on shipping or on, on the JCPOA. But I, I do think just for the sake of the people of Yemen, it is, it is crucial that the international community do everything it can to, to pressure for a ceasefire and to end the flow of weapons going into Yemen. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's something that uh, certainly should be pushed, should be supported. Uh, but uh, the direction of travel suggests that still, even with all the damage that's been done to the people of Yemen, that that's not going to happen. That's certainly not anytime soon. Anel, thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Bill. Pleasure to be here. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Anel Shaleen, a research fellow in the Middle East program at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft in Washington. In addition to our podcasts, which I'm pleased to say have a rapidly growing global audience, the Arab Digest newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts. If you'd like a free trial to the newsletter, simply go to ArabDigest.org. And if you enjoy what you find and want to join the club after your trial period has ended, we're offering special rates to students, academics, and retirees. And subscriptions are now available to university libraries. Check it out on ArabDigest.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest, essential reading from independent sources.